Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. On today's program, we'll take a look at what the new year might have in store for the world. After the Omicron spike, will the world be able to get back to something approaching normal? Perhaps a new normal. Will Russia actually invade Ukraine? Or is Vladimir Putin saber-rattling to get Western concessions? We made it clear that we cannot move on Ukraine. And what will China do in 2022? What are the implications for its neighbors and for America? Also, the global economy. Will there be more inflation, less productivity, fewer babies? I'll talk to experts about it all. And I will bring you a preview of my latest CNN special about the threat to American democracy. One year after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, is the republic really at risk? I believe it is. Stay tuned for a clip of the fight to save American democracy, which airs in full tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern. But first, here's my take. In just the last 10 days, almost a dozen people I know have tested positive for COVID-19. Two of them had a rough time with it, saying it was comparable to a full-blown case of the flu. The others had a day of chills or nothing at all. When asked about symptoms, one of them, having been isolated, responded, boredom. I compare that to the beginning of the COVID outbreak around March 2020, when I knew just two people who got the virus, both of whom were hospitalized, and one of whom, the talented New York chef Floyd Cardos, died. I realize that this is anecdotal, but the data so far confirms this pattern. In the words of one Wall Street Journal headline, New York's Omicron surge points to a wave of mild cases. If the pattern holds up, it's crucial that we approach this phase of the pandemic substantially differently rather than fighting the same way we did the last mutation. The United Kingdom Health Security Agency released an important analysis on December 31. Again, the findings are tentative based on data available a few days before. Even so, the analysis estimated that your risk of being hospitalized with Omicron is half as high as with the Delta variant, and your risk of needing emergency care is only one-third as high. More significant is the distinction between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. The UK analysis, which looked at AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Pfizer vaccines, estimated that people with two doses of the vaccine plus a booster shot are 88% less likely to be hospitalized than those without vaccinations. 
even if you get the virus, if you are double vaccinated and boosted, you are still an estimated 81% less likely to be hospitalized than if you are unvaccinated. If you get the virus and have had two doses of the vaccine, no booster, you are estimated to be 65% less likely to be hospitalized. In the United States, at least, hospitalization numbers themselves are misleading. For instance, the New York Times reported this week that at two major New York hospitals, around 50 to 65% of COVID hospitalizations were people coming to the hospital for other reasons than COVID, and then once there, testing positive for COVID. U.S. health officials have also noted the growing evidence that supports Omicron is less severe than Delta. In South Africa, where Omicron was first identified, even though relatively few have been vaccinated, people were less likely, 80% lower, according to one preprint study posted in December 2021, to be hospitalized for Omicron than for other variants. In addition, the Biden administration has now ordered 20 million treatment courses of the Pfizer COVID pill, though we clearly need more. The early data, and it is early, suggests two conclusions. First, Omicron is much less lethal than previous mutations of the virus. Second, the vaccines, especially with the booster shot, are highly effective at preventing serious illness and death. That means we're in a fundamentally different situation than we were in March 2020, when the original virus was sweeping around the world. We don't need lockdowns, school closures, or onerous travel restrictions. Instead, we need to make an even sharper distinction between the vaccinated and those who are not, coupled with sensible measures to slow the spread of the virus so that the healthcare system is not overburdened. The CDC has shortened the recommended isolation period from 10 to 5 days. Could it be even shorter if you are vaccinated and not showing any symptoms? At this point, for someone who is fully vaccinated with three shots, Getting Omicron seems to be similar to getting the flu. We don't force people with the flu to isolate for five days. We must have different rules across the board for people who are vaccinated. We know from the science and the statistics that they will impose many fewer burdens on the healthcare system. Why should the willfully unvaccinated be able to force the rest of society to pay the price for their refusal? to take a simple medical precaution. For everyone, the key beyond vaccines is mass testing and good masks. The epidemiologist Michael Mina has long argued that the focus on PCR tests as opposed to rapid tests has been misguided, that from a public health standpoint, what matters is not whether you have the virus, but whether you are spreading it to others. Rapid antigen tests determine that pretty effectively. But compared to Europe, tests in the United States cost way more and are far less widely available. Similarly, we should make widely available cheap, high-quality masks. Germany's leading virologist recently said that Omicron could become the first post-pandemic COVID variant, which would likely make the disease an endemic one, not so lethal and one that we will live with like the flu. We cannot be sure of this because with so many unvaccinated people, about 26% of Americans still have not received even one dose. The virus still has lots of space in which it can replicate and thus mutate. 
But it does seem that at least for now, for the vaccinated majority, the post-pandemic future has arrived if we are willing to accept it. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column. And let's get started. So how is Omicron likely to progress in this new year? Let me bring in Dr. Robert Wachter, chairman of the UCSF Department of Medicine, who's written very intelligently on all these subjects. Um, let me ask you, Doc, I know we have the, the, you, you feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel, but let's first talk about the tunnel. How bad is this wave going to look for the next month? Uh, hi, good morning, Fareed. Thank you for having me. Uh, I think it's going to look awfully bad, and I agree with you that the average case is much milder, but uh, we're seeing five times as many cases, maybe in some places more. San Francisco, a month ago, where I live, uh, we had 50 cases a day, and now we have 1,500 that are being reported, and as you know, many of them are not being reported because they're being tested, uh, uh, they're being confirmed on rapid tests done at home. So. The problem with the math for the next month is you do have a milder illness on average, but you have so many more cases that you still are having a lot. Uh, a lot of people come into hospitals. Hospitals really are getting overwhelmed. Nurses and doctors are out. I think we're going to have a really tough time for the next month. I do think there's light at the end of the tunnel, uh, but the tunnel is, uh, is a problem. Um, and in terms of how to cope with it, you know, my, my I, I hope I didn't come across as complacent, but what I'm saying is, if you are triple vaccinated and if you use the tests intelligently and if you wear do proper masking, you know, there's a way for you to have a, a more normal life. What is the biggest obstacle in managing that process for the next month? The biggest obstacle is Omicron, which is, is just unbelievably infectious. The kind of encounter that you might have had a month ago that would have been safe. Uh, now there's a decent chance it will it will cause you to be infected, even if you're vaccinated. And um, and so I guess my take on I, I, I liked your uh, your essay very much uh, because I think that is the world we're getting to. But I'm still in hunker down mode for the next several weeks because I do think there's just a ton of virus around. If you go into a restaurant, for example, and there are 20 or 30 people there, there's almost certain certainty that one of the people in the restaurant has COVID doesn't know it. And so at least for the next few weeks, as hospitals are getting filled and getting overwhelmed, I do think it's a time to be uh, to be very careful, not to hide under the kitchen table, as you might have done in March 20, uh, 2020. If you're fully vaccinated, the chances you're going to die of this are very low, uh, but they're not zero and it's not zero chance that you're going to go to the hospital. So I, I do think it's the right call to try to be safe if you can for the next few weeks. And the things you discussed, wearing a high quality mask, being thoughtful, uh, about the kinds of encounters you have. Uh, and then I do think that, you know, this is blowing through our population so quickly that we may be looking at a really bad January, but things in February looking looking like the world that you painted, one in which we can go about our business, unvaccinated people being at higher risk. But many of the unvaccinated people are going to get infected this month. And so they will have a, a measure of immunity that they didn't have before. Um, and your your hope, the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel comes from the data we're seeing out of South Africa, right, where you have a massive spike up, but then a massive spike down. Um, talk about well, why yes. that. What, so what does that look like? 
Yeah, it, it, it does look like that this virus just, once it enters a community, spreads like wildfire. And that's what we're seeing everywhere, even in San Francisco, uh, where it's the most highly vaccinated city in, in the country. We're seeing massive a massive increase in cases. So it, it hits a community very hard, very fast. As you said, the average person has a milder case than before, but not all of them do, and our hospitals are getting filled. And, and those are mostly people uh, who are sick with, with the virus. A fair number of them are also sick with other things and happen to have the virus. But um, it goes up very fast. And then at least in South Africa, after about a month or so, it plateaued and then came down just as fast. And London looks like it's showing the same pattern. There are a few weeks ahead of us. So why does it go up and come down so quickly? two things probably people start being a little more careful because people see their friends and family getting sick and they'd like to try to dodge that if they can but the second reason is the level of immunity in the community goes up very very quickly the the people who have had let's say if you only had one shot or two shots and you get a breakthrough case it's essentially the equivalent of a booster you're now going to have a higher level of immunity but the key thing uh, is the people who are unvaccinated. If you're unvaccinated and you're not really being super careful, you are going to get this virus and you're going to get your immunity the hard way. It would have been better if you got it through vaccination, but you're going to get some measure of immunity uh, from the virus. I hope you then go ahead and get vaccinated because that immunity, we don't know how long it's going to last and how robust it's going to be, but you will at least have some immunity. So at the end of this, you know, in, in a month or so, you have almost everyone with some level of immunity, which is not what you had going into the surge. That is so helpful for all of us to hear, doctor. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Next on GPS, we'll look at what we can expect from Russia in the current chaos in Kazakhstan and in Ukraine. What is Putin trying to do in, in 2022? One of the big debates taking place in Washington these days is whether or not Vladimir Putin intends in 2022 to reinvade Ukraine. People are wondering what Russia will do in Kazakhstan as well. More than 5,000 people have been arrested and more than 160 killed in the anti-government protests there this week. And the Kazakh government has welcomed a deployment of troops from Russia and its allies. To talk about it all, Ian Bremmer and Neil Ferguson are joining me. Ian is the president of the Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy, and Neil is a historian and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Neil, let me start with you because you wrote a very provocative column in Bloomberg uh, this week in which you said, uh, make no mistake of it, uh, Putin does seem ready to use military force. He is going through the song and dance of diplomatic uh, moves and demands. But don't be surprised if all that breaks down and he and he uh, essentially reinvades. Explain briefly why you why you feel that way. Well, uh, Vladimir Putin has been beating a drum of war uh, for months. Uh, back in July last year, he published an article on the historical unity of the Russians and Ukrainians, which I read carefully and took to be a, a threat to annex Ukraine, bring it under the control of Moscow. Uh, troops, 100,000 or so uh, Russian troops have been massed on Ukraine's uh, borders uh, for many months. And crucially, the Russian government issued uh, back in uh, December what amounted to an ultimatum to the United States and uh, NATO in the form of two draft security agreements that are full of things 
they really can't possibly accept. We're going to have a week of diplomacy uh, coming up uh, in the coming week, uh, but don't be fooled. This is not the kind of good faith diplomacy that is supposed to lead to an agreement. It's the kind of uh, phony diplomacy that an aggressor engages in prior to uh, a premeditated military attack. Uh, Ian, why do you feel uh, a little bit less uh, certain? In fact, you've said that at the end of the day, if you had to bet, you bet Russia will not uh, go into Ukraine militarily. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that if I had to bet, I do think escalation is very likely. I agree with Neil that uh, this is not uh, a friendly negotiation that is meant to resolve. It's actually meant to divide. But for me, I see Russia's big prize not as Ukraine, which they've already functionally annexed a piece of and they're occupying another piece of it, uh, but rather being able to divide the United States and Europe to a much greater degree. That's the goal. And Putin is not going to make it easy on the United States and Europe to respond together. Um, a full invasion of Russian tanks into Ukraine makes it much easier for the United States and Europe to work much more closely on pre-positioning, advanced positioning NATO troops closer to Russia's border, on very severe sanctions, and on recognizing that Russia is a severe and common threat. There are lots of other things the Russians can do, like cyber attacks. Uh, like uh, defending, formally defending um, the Russian citizens that are in the Donbass, who the Russians implausibly claim that Ukraine is committing acts of genocide against. So if I'm Biden, I'm much less worried, I think, um, about the idea that the Russians invade uh, and, and the Americans and the Europeans can then take the steps they said they were going to. And rather, they take other steps that would allow, for example, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who's going to meet by himself with Putin in the next few weeks to have a very different response to the Russians than the Americans will. Um, Neil, is it possible that this is a lot of saber rattling to not as a prelude to, uh, to, to war, but to set out a demand that Ukraine never become part of NATO, that that's his core issue, that he wants uh, a kind of guarantee, whether implicit or explicit, that, that Ukraine, that NATO has expanded all these different countries close to uh, Russia's border, but Ukraine has to be the bright line. Unfortunately, that's not the only thing that Putin is asking for. He's saying that NATO shouldn't accept any new members, that the US and NATO shouldn't deploy shorter intermediate range missiles within range of Russian territory, that the US shouldn't station nuclear weapons abroad, uh, uh, and so on, that NATO shouldn't deploy forces uh, to member states that joined NATO after 1997, that it shouldn't conduct military exercises in, uh, in those states. In, in effect, what Putin is trying to do, what his demands amount to, uh, is to create, uh, recreate really, uh, the old Soviet sphere of influence in Eastern Europe and render NATO enlargement after the end of the Cold War a dead letter. There's no way that Joe Biden, even if he's in full appeasement mode, can agree to uh, all of this. There may be a few things that they can agree to, but it's a very small proportion of what Russia's demanding that's really 
viable. And that means that I think Putin's set these uh, negotiations up to fail. And that's why I think military action's more likely than than Ian's suggesting, though I don't think we're too far apart, because I'm not saying uh, that Russian tanks are going to be rolling uh, across the plains towards Kiev. Uh, rather, I think what is going to happen is is an escalation uh, in the uh, areas where Russian forces already are present. Uh, there will be almost certainly a cyber component to this. But I don't think the primary goal is, is Ian, to divide uh, NATO. Uh, that, that's actually a relatively easy thing. Uh, and in many ways, you might say it's already been achieved by creating such heavy dependence by the Europeans on Russian natural gas. No, I think the goal here is to undermine the viability of Ukraine as a sovereign nation state and create such uncertainty that Ukraine never can stabilize as a democracy. That, I think, is the core goal. And it needs to be seen in the context of crises elsewhere uh, in the former Soviet uh, realm, not only in Kazakhstan, which Farid, you already mentioned, but, but also in Belarus. Putin cannot afford for there to be another successful uh, revolution, another, another successful democracy or semi-successful democracy, uh, showing Russians that there is an alternative to his brand of ultra-nationalist authoritarianism. And I think that's really how we should think about his objectives. Not that any of us can really read Vladimir Putin's mind. And that's where we have to, I think, be circumspect in what we predict. Uh, in, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to ask you one piece of this that Neil alluded to. It does seem that the threat of sanctions, of cutting Russia off from the global banking system, which are the things the Biden administration has talked about, fundamentally lack a certain uh, degree of vigor when you consider this issue that the Europeans are desperately dependent on Russian natural gas. Natural gas prices have gone up fourfold. Uh, they really can't afford for them to go up much more. You would have domestic crises in all of these countries. I assume your European governments will start subsidizing national gas because they cannot have people pay that much. Isn't that, the, you know, the kind of great Achilles heel in a, in a concerted Western response? And you have 45 seconds. It certainly explains the timing, uh, why this is being done in winter, uh, because that's, of course, when the Europeans are most uh, vulnerable. But Olaf Scholz did privately tell both the Americans and the UK that if there was an invasion, that Nord Stream 2 is dead. So I do think Putin has to be careful about how far he wants to push that leverage for it. Thank you, Ian Bremer. Neil Ferguson, pleasure to have you on. Last year, China continued its crackdown against pro-democracy activists and journalists in Hong Kong. On Taiwan, Beijing's actions and rhetoric brought renewed fears of a Chinese attack against the self-governing island. And Beijing strengthened ties with Russia while upsetting many of its other neighbors. What can we expect this year? Elizabeth Economy is the author of a new book out Tuesday called The World According to China. She's on leave from her post as a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution to serve as a senior advisor on China to the Secretary of Commerce. But she's speaking today in her civilian capacity. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Farid. Great to be here. So I want to ask you, you know, you're, you're the person who really in some ways fundamentally alerted us to the fact that Xi Jinping marked a very different leadership in China with a much more ambitious, in some ways more repressive, in some ways 
uh, more uh, expansionist uh, sense of China. Um, what do you think is most important to him on his agenda when he looks out right now? Is it more consolidation at home? Is it more external influence abroad? I mean, certainly 2022 is a really important uh, year for Xi Jinping because it is going to mark uh, the third point of transition for him. So come this fall, uh, he is up to be reselected as general secretary of the Communist Party for his third five-year term. And then we anticipate another third five-year term as president of the country the following spring. So I think there's little doubt that his number one priority is cementing his political control, his political leadership, and ensuring a sort of a smooth uh, 2022. Having said all that, I would say he has surprised us before uh, with his uh, adventurism. Uh, if we look back into the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, the first six months, we saw that he undertook a series of very assertive uh, military uh, moves uh, in the South China Sea, the border dispute with India in Bhutan, uh, around the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands. So even though, you know, rationally we should anticipate that he wants stability overall this year, I don't think we can exclude the possibility uh, of some uh, sort of uh, military assertiveness. Now I want to ask you about China's capabilities, because, you know, we sometimes hear a lot of Chinese pronouncements made in China. They're going to manufacture all this stuff. They're going to become the leaders in these technologies. They're going to spend trillions of dollars in the Belt and Road Initiative. And most of us don't follow uh, through to figure out how much is actually then happening. What, what does that part of it look like? How strong is China really? It's a really important point. Um, you know, you're right that uh, Xi Jinping is very fond of making grand pronouncements, and he has a lot of sort of flagship foreign policy initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, like, uh, you know, the Thousand Talents Program, like Confucius Institutes. But I think if you do, in fact, um, follow these projects over a period of years, uh, you find that in many respects they, they are less successful uh, than we previously understood. So, for example, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, yes, China has invested hundreds of billions of dollars or lent hundreds of billions of dollars to other countries um, for hard infrastructure, for digital infrastructure. It has increased uh, its presence in many countries uh, via this Belt and Road plan. Uh, but by the same token, if we're trying to understand the influence that China gains as a result of this investment, uh, you can look and see that in virtually every Belt and Road country, there are popular protests against those projects, right? because the people aren't receiving the benefits of the project. There's corruption, a lack of transparency uh, as the projects are pursued. Um, so that China, in many respects, isn't getting the kind of influence at a popular level, right? So Xi Jinping's levels of, of popular um, uh, popularity globally uh, by opinion polls are all-time low. Uh, trust in Xi Jinping is at an all-time low. Trust in China as a global leader uh, is at an all-time low. When you look at uh, Xi Jinping's image at home, uh, though, uh, is it fair to say that when you look, for example, at the dominant issue now, which is COVID, uh, the Chinese regime is presenting itself as being probably uniquely successful at dealing with COVID, with the zero uh, COVID policy. I think the last number I saw for deaths in China was something like uh, certainly under 5,000. And the number, you know, for the United States is about 825,000. So what is that? Uh, the United States has 165 times the number of, of deaths. 
Does, is, is Xi Jinping able to say it and does it resonate? Look, we've handled the, the biggest crisis of our times pretty well. Um, look, certainly, I think um, when you look at the number of deaths, China has a terrific story to tell. Uh, it has been very aggressive at arresting the spread of, of the virus in ways that the United States has not. Uh, I think um, and Xi Jinping has sold that story and has sold it effectively. Uh, on the other hand, I think moving forward, it is more difficult for China. I think this lockdown process right, has significant implications for Chinese economic growth, for its uh, position in supply chains and the sense of reliability um, that China has, you know, globally uh, as an economic supplier. Um, it, you know, China's economy is slowing. Uh, it uh, has unemployment rates now between the ages of 16 and 24 at 14.2%. Um, consumption is not growing. So there are a number of challenges that China is facing um, in part because of this um, way that it's approached its, its COVID, um, uh, you know, addressing the COVID pandemic uh, that are problematic. Um, but I think overall, um, yes, uh, I think Xi Jinping has made a, a strong case uh, for uh, how he has elected to um, to address the challenge. Liz Economy, always a pleasure. Thanks, Fareed. Next on GPS, we'll look at our wallets and try to understand what we can expect from the global economy this year. In 2021, we had the return of inflation, spikes in gas prices, a gummed up supply chain and the great resignation, which saw millions of Americans bid adieu to their old jobs. What will 2022 bring to the U.S. and global economy? For answers, let me bring in Ruchir Sharma, a global investor and a contributing editor at the FT. Ruchir, uh, you, you have a few uh, really fascinating predictions in the Financial Times. Uh, so let me ask you about some of them. The first one you talk about is the baby bust. Explain. Well, Farid, you know, one of the defining features of this pandemic has been that instead of upending the world, what the pandemic did was to accelerate many trends that were already underway before uh, 2020. And one of those was the demographic shift that uh, we are seeing, um, which is that the world's working age population and even the population growth rates had been slowing down for many years before the pandemic. You would have expected that during the pandemic with people staying indoors, uh, that they'd be having more babies. Instead, the evidence that's coming is that the demographic decline or the decline in the world's birth rate accelerated during the pandemic. And that, I think, has major implications for global growth going forward, um, among other things. One of the points you make is that Chinese growth has slowed down. We've all seen this. But surprisingly, it doesn't seem to matter as much as people used to think it would. Yeah, just see what's happened over the past couple of years, uh, especially in 2021, that you had a major slowdown in China's uh, economic growth rate, and yet so many economies around the world accelerated. Um, and I think that this is a big change which is taking place as China turns more inward, and also as China's growth rate slows down. So I think that we are at peak China, which is that the contribution of China to the global economy uh, is going to keep declining after the peak it reached in 2019, when China alone 
was contributing to nearly 40% of the world's economic growth. I think that number is, uh, has come down to about 25% and will keep going down in the years ahead because China faces so many structural challenges from the decline in its population to the incredible amount of debt that it has piled up, which is undermining productivity in China now. And that issue is the one that you really focus on, uh, which is debt. I mean, when you, when you look at the transformation of the picture for the world's major economies in terms of the massive increase in debt um, over the last 10 years, but really the last year, year or two, uh, describe how, what that looks like. You know, today there are more than 25 countries in the world which have a debt to GDP ratio of more than 300%. To put this in perspective, in the mid-1990s, there were no countries in the world which had a debt as a share of their economy that was as large as 300%. So a massive amount of debt has been taken on. During the pandemic in particular, we saw some very sharp increases in debt levels led by governments around the world that were taken. Now, you can argue that during crises, it's fine to take on more debt to ride through the troubled times. The problem is that even during the good times now, we keep on taking more debt. And this has some serious implications, not necessarily in terms of a crisis, but something more insidious, that by taking on so much debt, we're keeping alive a lot of inefficient companies, a lot of zombie companies, as I call them, and that is undermining productivity and is also one of the trends that I speak about. When you look at uh, rising asset prices, uh, low interest rates, which fuel rising asset prices like stock prices, uh, one has to ask, I mean, American stocks are at extraordinary highs, all-time highs. It's, you know, it does appear to be something like a bubble. Is this a bubble? I think there are pockets of what I call bubblets in the market. Uh, so electrical vehicles, I think in clean energy, I think there are so many technology stocks out there with no earnings. I think even cryptocurrencies, which is a good idea that's gone too far. I think that there are these bubblets out there and they have started to deflate. On average, the prices uh, of many of these bubblets are already down 35 to 40 percent from their peak. And my guess is that they have much further to go. I'm particularly concerned about a lot of small and retail investors who have rushed in and bought these uh, assets in the last 18 months or so. At the same time, the insiders, uh, the big CEOs at companies are selling the stock uh, of these very companies. So that's a mismatch that we have to look out for and a warning sign, uh, I think, for the markets. Richard Sharma, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Fareed. Next on GPS. One year after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the American political experiment is teetering. I will bring you a preview of my latest special, The Fight to Save American Democracy, which airs tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. Tonight on CNN, my latest special will premiere. It's called The Fight to Save American Democracy, 
and it airs at 9 p.m. Eastern. In one part of the hour, I take up the difficult question of whether America has anything to learn from the most famous collapse of democracy in the past hundred years, that of Germany in the 1930s. A film industry that rivaled Hollywood. Groundbreaking expressionist art. And more Nobel Prize winners than any other nation, including a physicist named Albert Einstein. This was Germany in the 1920s. The thriving and sophisticated Weimar Republic. It was a proud and advanced democracy with a state-of-the-art constitution, women's suffrage, and a hundred years ago, a strong gay rights movement. But in a few short years, all of it was gone. His chief opponent is Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler came to power in this crucial presidential campaign. Every vote counts. By killing democracy from within. Hitler leaving for his first cabinet meeting. He was enabled, crucially, by Germany's conservative establishment. Von Hindenburg installed Hitler as its leader. That tried to use him. Underestimated him. Hitler assumed dictatorial powers. And eventually was destroyed by him. The responsibility of the conservative elites is massive. The German Republic was dead. Hitler's rise is the most deadly example of a chilling pattern. Hailed by his compatriots as the genius of Italy. Political insiders willingly giving power to a charismatic strongman. And the scholars who wrote How Democracies Die worry The time for action has come. That this pattern may be repeating itself in America. I alone can fix it. Establishment Republicans. I'm pleased to be here with Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Thought that they saw an opportunity in Donald Trump and decided they need to form a kind of unholy alliance with him. We see this dynamic of conservative elites aligning themselves with demagogic outsiders throughout history. Let's be very clear. Donald Trump is not Adolf Hitler. But Weimar's death highlights a danger for all democracies. Specifically, the way conservative elites determined to keep the left out of power align themselves with an anti-democratic demagogue. The story in Germany began with a big lie. Don't miss the fight to save American democracy tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. 
host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.